Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. You know, here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. Regular listeners to the program know that these Ministry Watch Extra episodes are a chance for us to go deep, you might say, with some of our editorial partners. And today I'm pleased to have back on the program, it's been too long, Julie Royce. Julie Royce runs the Royce Report, an investigative journalism website. Uh, she also has a podcast of the same name. So with that, Julie, again, it has been too long. Welcome back to the program. Hey, Warren. You're right, and it's great to be with you. Thanks so much. You bet. Now, Julie, I'd like to begin today uh, with the latest from Liberty University, because that's a story that you and I have both been following for quite a while. Um, the latest is that Liberty has sued Falwell. Liberty University has sued Jerry Falwell Jr., the former president there, the son of the founder, Jerry Falwell Sr., for $10 million. Um, fill us in on some of the details, and what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, well, as many listeners probably recall, Falwell resigned in late August, and there were all sorts of allegations that he was involved in sexual misconduct, financial misconduct. I mean, I think that the worst of those was this relationship that uh, Becky admits she had his wife with Giancarlo Granda. Um, just an awful, <laughs> an awful uh, ongoing relationship that supposedly Jerry was involved in as well. So it's kind of like this threesome, really uh, kind of grotesque uh, kind of sexual tryst that they had. This all came out and, and he resigns. Well, in the midst of all this, here he is, the, the Christians, the largest Christian school in the nation, and we have this huge sexual scandal. He resigns, and then days later, it's, an, it's found out that, in fact, he's kind of bragging about it almost with reporters, that he's got a $10.5 million golden parachute. And, uh, and he has the gall after this, uh, about two months after resigning, then he actually filed suit against Liberty, uh, saying that they disparaged him. And he's denying that he was ever a part of this relationship, at least the sexual part of it, with, with Granda. Um, then he withdrew that lawsuit, but now Liberty University is coming back after Jerry Falwell for this golden parachute, it looks like, wanting this uh, to claw back this $10.5 million. And so they've filed suit against Jerry. And, and a lot of it is saying that um, not only was he behaving in a manner which wouldn't be acceptable even to a non-Christian uh, or a secular president at a secular uh, university, but not only was he doing this, but he was also crafting uh, a deceitful scheme, in the words of the lawsuit, a deceitful scheme to manipulate the executive committee of liberty. You know, it's clear he was trying to cover up the relationship he had with Granda. He'd arranged payoffs and kept these racy pics of his wife uh, out of the public eye. At least that's what the lawsuit is alleging. Um, and in the midst of while he was hiding all this, he negotiated this new deal with the board in 2019 to get, uh, one, a raise for himself, but also this this big golden parachute that then he cashed in on. And they're saying, well, you knew about that all along. My question, though, Warren, is in 2019, the board already knew about a lot of red flags, about self-dealing and you know these contracts to friends and all these things. And yet now Jerry Prevo, who was chairman of the board at the time when this was all done, um, he's now the, the president, interim president of, of Liberty. Jerry's brother, Jonathan, just became, you know, campus pastor. So although I think there's a, a lot of groundswell of support for clawing back this $10.5 I think there's a lot of people going, 
you know, how can you, who are on the board, now be coming after Jerry? You were a part of all this, and, and you're not owning any of the responsibility. So, it, you know, it, it's, it's a really, it's like a soap opera going on over there at Liberty, but it's never a dull moment, that's for sure. Well, it really is a soap opera and never a dull moment. Uh, but here are my questions, and I would be curious about your reaction to that, because I hear you loud and clear. Jerry Prevo was on the board, chairman of the board, when a lot of these deals were made. Now he's the interim president. I wrote an article, in fact, called Where Was the Board Whenever This mm-hmm. Whole Liberty um, Thing Broke. Um, so I, you know, I'm with you uh, 100% whenever I say that I think the board bears a tremendous amount of responsibility for this. But I do want to ask this, and I'm just wondering if you think this is possible, that maybe the board's finally come to its senses, that maybe <laughs> this, you know, it, it, yes, the board should have prevented that $10 million payment in the first place, should never have agreed to that golden parachute or whatever it was in the first place. But is the fact that they're now willing to step up, that they're taking what can't be for many of them an easy move to sue Jerry Jr. to get that money back. Um, is it possible to interpret this charitably as that the board has finally come to its senses and developed a little bit of backbone and is finally doing the right thing? Well, we can hope. And and that is the hope, right, that, that they have. And I think a lot of people are, again, cheering what they're doing. Um, I, <laughs> I know that Jerry Falwell has been posting on his social media trying to garner support for himself, and almost all of the responses have been negative towards the things that he's doing. So um, have they developed a backbone or have they seen that this, you know, is the popular thing to do? I don't know. I mean, uh, let's let's hope for the best, I guess. And I'm I'm glad to see them them taking these stands. And and we'll see as things move forward what kind of decisions they make. Um, I do know, or at least I would, I, I'm working on a story. There's more there to be reported at Liberty, and I don't think I'm the only one. Um, and some of these stories involve current leadership who were on the board at the time. So um, I think there's more reckoning coming. Yeah, well, there's no question about that. That um, there's uh, a lot. There's a lot of blame to go around there. A lot of folks in senior leadership and on the board had to know things and not and and keep quiet for uh, all of this to happen. So I guess, uh, like you said a few moments ago, stay tuned. Is <laughs> probably the yeah. thing that you can say right. <laughs> say about that situation that is will be completely true. There will be more to come. Uh, Julie, let's uh, move on with a story about a Baptist preacher who. Um, I don't know, a couple of months ago, maybe berated women for being overweight. And now he's apologized for that, saying that, you know, that it was, um, it deeply grieves him. His words did. It was uh, one of the worst mistakes of his life. Fill us in on that story. Yeah, this is, you know, one of those things that just went viral. I mean, he, here's this pastor uh, who's at this, it's a small General Baptist Church in Malden, Missouri, and he says these things that got posted online, and boom, the thing goes viral. And women were incensed, and I, I think rightly so, because here's this guy. And if you look at the video, uh, he's he's got a few extra, <laughs> you know, and yet he's applying this double standard telling wives that they, you know, need to look gorgeous and like um, Melania Trump. And yeah, that didn't go over very well at all. So he did take a leave of absence. He's supposedly getting professional counseling. Um, I don't know that he needs professional counseling. I think he needs like some serious attitude adjustment and he needs to understand how God feels about women and about people. And, you know, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I mean, that's, this is like basic 
understanding of who we are created in God's image. And here he is a pastor and he doesn't get that. But now he's come out with an apology and, and, the, and the deacons there have come out with apology as well. And it kind of looks like it's the precursor to him returning to the pulpit. And, you know, I mean... <laughs> You don't say things like that, and it, it wasn't just like a one-time gaffe. The entire sermon was full of these things, and now people are going back and finding other sermons that were similar. Um, this man needs to take some years off and really have a reset, I think. And I think that's kind of the general, at least after I posted the piece, and I know that the feedback I'm getting from people who are reading it, that, yeah, they're feeling like this guy needs some serious readjustment, not like a few months off and say you're sorry and back to the pulpit. Yeah. Well, I first of all, I agree with everything that you just said. I guess I do, though, Julie, have a little bit of um, heartburn about this story um, because, I mean, he he's a young pastor in a small church. He clearly said something very, very stupid that, you know, in my view, at least for a season, should disqualify him from ministry. I'm not disputing any of that. I think the thing that, that um, frustrated me about that story is the fact that, I mean, it, it became a global cause celeb and that, uh, you know, 20 years ago, um, maybe, maybe, that guy would have grown up. Maybe that guy wouldn't have grown up and he would have been allowed to stay in ministry. I don't know. Maybe this is a good thing, um, you know, what we're seeing here on social media. But whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, there's no denying that it was a thing. And um, <laughs> that, that there's, you know, you've just, we live in a very, very different media environment than we did even as recently as 10 years ago. Yeah, we do. And, you know, people need to reckon with it. But I, I, I guess I feel less sympathy. I mean, in some ways, yes, he, he really, really got hammered. But what he said was so bad. And there was nothing biblical about it, Warren. I mean, it's not like he's sitting there holding the Bible. I mean, I'm as offended by how unbiblical it was as as I am as a woman for somebody to say things about females, you know, that he said. I'm offended that he didn't use the word of God. And I'm offended by, and I think this is maybe why the backlash was so virulent, is that it's symbolic of something bigger. It's symbolic of pastors that get up and it's all fluff and there's no scripture and they say things that are, you know, just have no support in the word of God. And so, yeah, it kind of became, you know, he became a lightning rod and everybody attacked and but you know, when you when you're going to come up, I mean, the scripture makes this very clear that the teachers will be judged more harshly. And so if you're going to be a preacher, you know, handle the word of God right. Well, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, long before social media, you know, I had a mentor 30, this was probably close to 30 years ago now, who once said to me, um, Warren, you need to act like everything you say and everything you do is going to be on the front page of the New York Times tomorrow. Yep. Probably won't be, but you need to act like it will be. And now we're just, I think the only difference between, you know, that advice, which was good advice back way back then, and today is that 
there's actually a significantly better chance that you will end up in the New York <laughs> Times today, no matter who you are, just because of social media. So, so be careful, watch your mouth, but it's more than just watching your mouth. It's, you know, it's like, uh, be ready, be prepared. You know, if you're going to be a pastor, you know, get yourself ready to be a pastor. If you're going to be a teacher, as you say, you know, more is expected of teachers and that preparation needs to be there. And in this case, it clearly wasn't. Okay, Julie, let's look at one more story before we go to the break. Um, the, the, the story that you've been following a good bit, it's the story of Brian Loritz, uh, a guidepost investigation that was widely reported as clearing him from wrongdoing. In fact, you say didn't clear him from wrongdoing, much more there than meets the eye. Who's Brian Lawrence? Who is guidepost? And um, why do you say that um, he's not qualified for ministry? Well, Brian Loritz is the executive pastor at J.D. Greer, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's the executive pastor at his church. He's also an author. He's the son of Crawford Loritz, who's a well-known author and speaker and pastor as well. Um, but the allegations are that 10 years ago at his previous church, he had covered up sex crimes by his brother-in-law, who was a worship pastor there. And what we know is that a woman found a phone recording her in the bathroom. She looked on the phone. It had dozens of recordings of other people privately recorded in bathrooms. Uh, the phone belonged to this Rick Trotter, the brother-in-law of Brian Loritz. The phone was given to Brian Loritz. He admits he didn't call police or report the crime. He took the phone home. The next day, he says he gave it to a pastor. But all we know is that that phone is gone, and we have two witnesses who say that Brian Loritz and the pastors at um, this church, uh, it was Fellowship Memphis uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, that they all conspired to destroy the phone. And we know that Rick Trotter never, ever got reported to police. Police have no report of it. The Child Protective Services, they have no report of it. Um, and we know that Rick Trotter went on to another church with the full knowledge of these pastors. They say they warned the other church, but <laughs> they allowed it to happen. Brian Loritz even hired this guy in 2015. So five years later, hires Rick Trotter, this guy who secretly recorded all these um, these women in bathrooms, uh, potentially children as well, um, for a conference to lead worship for it. So when J.D. Greer hired Loritz over the summer, I started reporting on these things because I became aware of the story. And so I reported the two eyewitnesses and their accounts of what happened. And it was very damning towards Brian Loritz. But initially, the church seemed to, you know, Summit Church and J.D. Greer just seemed to um, just ignore it or just say it wasn't it wasn't relevant or, you know, that what I had reported wasn't that serious. Um, but there must have been enough of an outcry that in I believe it was December, They, the church commissioned a third-party guidepost to do an investigation. And if you read the report, and I wish people would read the report um, instead of just the news reporting on it, because the news reporting on it essentially said, he's been cleared of wrongdoing. Well, read the report, because what the, the report says is that everyone with a vested interest said that Brian Brian's story holds up, which Brian says, oh, he gave the phone to a pastor, and at that point, he had nothing to do with anything else uh, with, with Rick Trotter and with what happened. He was the senior pastor there. But everybody, all the pastors that they interviewed, who, again, would be, be guilty. It's kind of like, you know, talking to G. Gordon Liddy or <laughs> someone who was involved in Watergate scandal about, you know, Nixon and his role. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous that, that that would even be taken as that credible. But those, those pastors say that, yeah, Brian, what he says uh, is true. His sister, who was one of—Brian Loritz's sister, was one of the victims, and she supports him. But if you look at everybody 
who didn't have a vested interest. There's two eyewitnesses, and they tell a totally different story. And most everybody else with firsthand knowledge, including the woman who found the phone and the pastor who allegedly uh, Brian gave the phone to, neither one of them would participate in the investigation. And even one of the pastors who would have been part of the cover-up, if there was a cover-up, only only participated with his lawyer present. And we don't know where the phone is. We have all these serious questions remaining. So it kind of became a he said, she said, in a sense, but with all these extraordinarily serious questions unanswered. So he wasn't cleared. They found what they said, no convincing evidence. But, you know, it it's... It was very inconclusive. It should have been reported to me as inconclusive, but very serious questions remain. Well, let me, let me, um, yeah, I mean, because I got to be honest with you, Julie, as you, even as, you know, no offense, but even as mm-hmm. you were describing that, my eyes start to glaze over in this story because it's, it does become very quickly into a he said, she said, which brings me to this question. Mm-hmm. What does this do to the credibility of guidepost i mean um are are they because up until now they have been viewed by many as along maybe with grace as two of the gold standards that if you are serious about wanting to really find out what's going on you need to hire somebody that's independent and that means either grace or guidepost has, has their reputation been sullied are they do they remain the gold standard in this kind of work well, they wouldn't be my gold standard. And and it's not because of the investigation itself. Again, as I read the entire report, it was pretty even-handed and even pointed out a lot of the things that were serious concerns. What really threw me was the conclusion at the end. So at the, you, you, hear the, you read the entire report, and then it kind of gets to the executive summary at the end. And that's where I was just like dumbfounded by the way that they framed it. Um, and that's where I say, boy, you can tell who's, I mean, to me, the cynic in me, uh, says, or the skeptic, I should say. I don't think I'm a cynic. I think I'm, I'm skeptical though. And I would say, well, um, the church, Summit Church paid for this. And the executive summary to me reflects that. That's where I felt that it was very disingenuous because they really should have said much more strongly, uh, we weren't, and who wants to say this when you're the investigators? Uh, we really didn't get the key people to talk or to tell us anything, and we couldn't find key evidence, and it's really inconclusive. So you spend all this money, and we, we end up kind of where we were at square one again. They didn't really do that. I felt like they kind of framed it in a way that was very, very sympathetic towards Brian Loritz, and, and even not pointing out you know some of the discrepancies and the things that he said, because he initially said he gave the phone to the elders at the church, and then later said, oh, no, I gave it to this pastor. And again, the pastor wouldn't speak to anyone. So it, it's, it's just so many questions left. And, and I one of the questions is guidepost solutions. So uh, I wish they had done a lot better job when they summarized it. Yep. Well, Julie, we've got to take a break. You're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. I'm your host, Warren Smith, and my guest this week is Julie Royce of The Royce Report. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. 
Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Warren Smith with Ministry Watch, and my guest this week is Julie Royce. Now, Julie, another story that you guys have been covering has been the classical conversations movement. Uh, First, for those who are not familiar with classical conversations, uh, tell everybody what it is and what it does. Sure. Uh, Classical Conversations is a leading homeschool education company, but it's unlike a lot of curriculum companies because uh, to get a Classical Conversations curriculum, you need to be in what's called, you know, one of their local programs. And these local programs, to lead one of these local programs, you actually have to become a licensee with Classical Conversations. And you're really starting what's essentially a small business. You're starting a homeschool education business. But it runs a lot like a lot of volunteer co-ops, except these are ones where, again, they're licensees of Classical Conversations. They use exclusively Classical Conversations curriculum, and the people involved in it, um, again, are participating, uh, the, the tutors and so forth, are paid for their services, unlike a lot of co-ops, homeschool co-ops, where people might be volunteers who are doing the teaching or, or homeschool moms themselves. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, and, and in fact, I've, I need to share in a spirit of full disclosure that I have, uh, you know, um, not my family hasn't been involved in uh, classical conversations, but many of my friends have had their families involved in classical conversations. And for a lot of these families and organizations that are involved, um, it's been a positive experience. But uh, some of your reporting, um, Julie, has revealed that all is not peaceable in the classical kingdom. What are some of the things that you guys have uncovered? Well, and this has been going on for like over a decade. If you look at there's been private Facebook groups that have been going on for a very long time that have hundreds of people involved in them complaining about mostly the business model, Warren, because what's happening is a lot of these homeschool moms get recruited to be um, what's called local directors. So they're going to start a classical conversations program in their, often in the local church. And they get involved, and they don't seem to fully recognize what they're getting into. And so um, a lot of people have described it now that they're out as what looks like a multi-level marketing scheme because they get classical conversations, recruits these moms um, to do these programs, um, but they're... It, it seems like they're not making any money, even though they're they're launching a business. But they're taking on all the responsibilities of taxes, which some a lot of them say they had no idea that was not revealed to them that they would have to pay taxes on certain things until they get you know meet with their um, CPA and find out oh you have to pay taxes on this 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 and this. And then the hiring, the kind of liability that they're opening themselves up to. I mean, a lot of these uh, homeschool educators just don't seem to understand that um, that they're they're starting a, a small business and what all is involved in this. And so they get in over their heads. But the the thing that makes it look so exploitive is that they're not making hardly any money. We have these women who are working twenty hours a week doing these homeschool programs. And again, Classical Conversation is is a you know multi million dollar company. They're making quite a bit. But they're not really doing any of the work. It's all these homeschool moms who are working 20 hours a week. And on average, we found, um, and again, it's hard to get this data because Classical Conversations is very tight with their data. We had to get women who had been uh, directors of local programs, and several of them gave us their data. But it looks like, you know, they're not making more than like 
two to 3,000, some of them, for the entire year working 20 hours a week. And then we have these area representatives and state representatives who similarly are saying the only way you can make money as an area representative or a state representative is if you meet these bonuses. But Classical Conversations always puts these bonuses just out of reach, so you can never really reach them. And we have one woman who said, I grew my area or uh, my area that was under me by 3,000%, and I still wasn't making much money. Yeah, I mean, I've been aware, like I say, of Classical Conversations for a long time, and I've known a lot of women that have been, mostly women, that have been involved with it. Um, answer this, um, um, you, you know, sort of if I were to play devil's advocate for just just a moment on what you sure. said. A lot of folks, a lot of families are involved in classical education, um, not to make money, but to finance um, their own children's education. In other words, there a lot of the a lot of moms, especially some that are high energy or a little bit entrepreneurial, are saying, "Hey, listen, I can lead a, I can lead a co-op here. I can." Uh, um, you know, basically get make enough money to get my kids' education for free and maybe pay me a little bit extra money on the side. I'll do it for as long as my kids are being homeschooled. And um, I'm not trying to get rich. I'm just trying to finance my own kids' uh, education, build a community, maybe exercise some leadership skills in the local area that I'm in. And that's all I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Isn't that Okay. Yeah. And if you're happy with it and you're content with it and it's working well, great. I mean, I've, I've heard from some, some uh, homeschool moms who, who have said that, who have been classical conversations directors. Um, most of them have said, yeah, I don't make hardly any money. And yeah, uh, there is a lot more to it than I understood at first. And so that is a common theme that we're hearing. And I think the disclosure is part of it. And what we're hearing from a, a number of these former directors is that if I had any idea what I was getting into, I never would have done it. And that the company is not being forthright. And in fact, one of the things we found out is that in a webinar uh, in 2019, um, uh, the board, uh, I can't think of his first name, but uh, his name, last name is Bortons, who's the head of the program uh, or the head of classical conversations, actually made this claim that there's never been uh, any tax problems. Well, that's not true. We found out that some of these churches who have hosted these classical conversations, because the programs are for profit, um, you, they're, they've gotten socked with uh, losing their, their um, property tax exemption. So they've got hit with these big tax, uh, property tax bills. So for Bortons to say there's been no issues, it seems very disingenuous because there have been issues. There have been tens of thousands of dollars assessed to some of these churches who have hosted these programs. So again, it becomes a matter of disclosure. And, and this is what we're always talking about, right? It's transparency and yep. accountability. So that's what we're trying to bring by bringing some of these stories to the forefront and, and letting people know what, what they're getting into. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think I think that's what the key here is that transparency and accountability are what's important. I mean, if people, you know, know they're not going to make any money and they get into it for other reasons, then that's great, but they should know that going in. So I, I respect and appreciate that point. Julie, we got to bring our conversation to a close, but I couldn't leave this week without talking about Ole Anthony. Um, uh, Oli uh, was kind of, in some ways, the godfather of what we do <laughs> as uh, yeah. as folks that look at ministries. Could you briefly tell our listeners who Oli Anthony was? By the way, I should say straight straight away that he passed away this week uh, in Dallas, Texas, and that's the reason, uh, of course, that I wanted to say a little bit about him this week. 
Yeah. And you probably, I mean, you actually corresponded with him somewhat. I, I never have. I just know about him by his reputation. But Ole Anthony is someone who uh, started the Trinity Foundation, which uh, investigates a lot of these televangelists. Uh, he was really known for in the 1990s uh, when he brought about the information about uh, Robert Tilton and what he was doing with this uh, direct mail campaign where people would send in both checks and prayer requests. He threw the prayer requests reportedly in the trash, but he kept the checks. Um, and so it, only Anthony has really been on the forefront of exposing these televangelists and doing a lot of the kind of watchdog work that really does need to be done uh, in the church. And I'm just incredibly appreciative for the work that he's done. Well, I am too there, and um, I, I should also say that uh, Pete Evans and Barry Bowen um, there with the Trinity Foundation are sort of keeping his memory and his work alive, and we mm-hmm. really appreciate them. But yeah, I, you're right. I had I'd never met Ole face to face, at least that I can recall. But I had many telephone conversations and email exchanges with him over the years, and have depended upon the Trinity Foundation's research on many of the stories that I have done. In fact, my, a recent story that I did on. Canacook depended upon some help that I got from them. Um, I did a chapter in my book called, uh, my book, Faith-Based Fraud, called What Would Jesus Fly? That depended upon Trinity Foundation research into the jet aircraft, the private Mm -hmm. jets that um, all these televangelists are flying around in today. So they have done great work, largely unheralded work, often underfunded work over the years. And so um, I just wanted to acknowledge to, uh, to the world and especially to our listeners that uh, Ole Anthony uh, was a, he was a strange guy in many ways, uh, <laughs> but uh, but really a, a wonderful guy. And I would strongly recommend to our listeners that they read both your um, obituary of, of, of Ole on your website, The Royce Report, but also we, we republished a, uh, a tribute from someone who worked uh, with uh, Ole for many, many years on our website. So two places to go to really kind of get a full-orbed look at this um, strange and wonderful man, Ole Anthony, who passed away this week. So, Julie, again, let me just say thanks so much for being on the program. Uh, To find out more about the Roy's Report and the stories that we discussed today, you can go to theroysreport.com. And by the way, that's spelled R-O-Y-S, RoyceReport.com. To find out more about Ministry Watch, you can go to MinistryWatch.com. Both of us are donor-supported ministries, both the Royce Report and Ministry Watch. You can go to our respective websites and find out how to donate to each of us on the front page if you want to do so. Uh, and uh, I would encourage you to listen to Julie's uh, podcast as well. Rate our podcast and Julie's podcast on your podcast app. Uh, that does us a lot of good, even if you're not able to contribute financially to the podcast. The more ratings we both get, the more um, discoverable, as they say, uh, our respective podcasts are on search engines. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database technical and editorial support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Christina Darnell, and Casey Suddeth. Thanks to Jackson Elliott and Josh Shepard of The Royce Report, who contributed stories that Julie and I discussed today. I'm Warren Smith, along with this week's guest, Julie Royce, and you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.